Our reading tonight are scriptures from Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 15. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, This God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. And then our reading continues at Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed in this time and in this space. Through these words and through any and all of the thoughts and feelings that are provoked by your spirit. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you missed... Last Sunday, or if you walked in a little bit late today and didn't get to hear Alan kind of introducing um, the, the evening and the series, we are in the second week of our Lenten journey towards the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And, and during Lent this year, we're going through a sermon series that we've called Prayer 101. And for these seven weeks, which will include Easter Sunday, we're going to be praying with Jesus and with the disciples and really with Christians throughout all of time and space Uh, using these familiar words of the Lord's Prayer, which can be seen kind of in varying tones up there. Each week, our sermon will focus on a single line or a single uh, petition from this prayer, and we'll try to offer a response to the question, what does it mean for me and for us to pray this particular line? Um, And so last week, 
Alan kicked off the series and kind of helped us explore the prayer's address, Our Father in Heaven, and what it means for our community of faith that we are all children of the same parent God. And tonight, just in case you haven't guessed it already, we're going to be looking a little bit more closely at Hallowed Be Thy Name. What does it mean for us to pray this line? Every week, week in and week out, we pray, hallowed be thy name. And so tonight we're going to explore a little bit of what we might be doing and saying when we pray that. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a child growing up and and kind of praying this prayer every week in church, I didn't know the word hallowed, and nobody really took any time to, you know, teach it to me. And for some reason that God only knows, everybody around me was pronouncing it hallowed. Does anybody else remember this, hallowed be thy name? It was the most confusing thing for a six-year-old ever. I didn't really understand it, and so I just kind of kept on trying new combinations that I thought might work. And I'd sit here in the pew, and I'd say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Maybe that could work. So, like, God's name is Hollowood, and we just kind of want to remind God each week that we haven't forgotten it. But I could never really... It just didn't make sense. I couldn't figure out what God had to do with hollow wood, and it was just a very confusing thing for me. And so I may well be the only person in the room that's had this particular problem, but just in case anyone else has, uh, has a need to clear that up, the word that we're actually praying there is, is hallowed. And it's not a word that we use all too often in our day-to-day speech, but it's a passive form of, of the verb to hallow, which simply means to honor as holy. There's nothing particularly special about the way that it shows up in the Bible. That's just what the word hallow means. Um, But the fact that this particular petition kind of sits in the prayer in this particular way, let your name be hallowed, uh, suggests maybe that God's name is not always honored as holy in the way that it ought to be. Um, And so we are praying for God's help or favor or intervention Um, as we hope to see the wrong corrected and to rightly honor God's name on earth as it is honored in heaven, which is going to be the line that we look at next week. Um, As I read the Lord's Prayer, I kind of read this week's and next week's together. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in three different ways, really, these petitions are kind of inviting God to participate in in accomplishing the same thing. Um, If God's kingdom has truly come, then certainly God's name is being honored as holy. If God's will has truly been done, then it certainly has established God's kingdom on earth. And if God's name is being properly honored, then we can assume that God's will is being done and God's kingdom is is realized. And so for fear of repetition and just kind of because I felt like the Spirit moved me in a different direction, we're going to leave some of the details of what that might actually look like to be explored more closely next week and spend our time tonight wondering together about God's holy name. Um, for starters, it is not hollow wood. So, just so you know. The, uh, the Bible, from kind of beginning to end, has a really funny relationship with names. Um, a number of people are named in a kind of formula that's supposed to tell us something about their place in the big narrative 
um, or about their relationship with God. And so Noah is one of these people, and, and his name is, is a play on the Hebrew word for grace or favor. And this is how the author of that particular story wants us to interpret the story of God saving humanity from the flood. You may or may not be convinced by that. Um, on the other hand, there are a number of, of really seemingly important characters in Scripture whose name we are never told. Uh, the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at the well remains unnamed, as does the woman caught in adultery. And you may have noticed that the common link here is that they are not males. Um, more often than not, people with disabilities are referred to by their ailment rather than by <clears throat> a name, a given name. And so we hear of Jesus, for instance, healing the blind man or multiple blind men, but we rarely, not never, but rarely get to actually know who the blind man is. Sometimes a person has a name, like Isaac, but at a certain point in the narrative, other characters just kind of stop using it. Um, when walking up the mountain to sacrifice his son, Abraham stops calling him Isaac, my only son, my beloved, and begins instead referring to him as the boy or the lad, which is the same thing that Abraham uses to talk about his servants. And this is certainly not an accident of the literature, but instead it's, it's a clue. It's a way that the author clues us into something significant about how the Bible understands the importance of a name. If the choice to avoid using a person's name, for instance, indicates an increasing distance, as with Abraham and Isaac, then it would follow that the invitation to address somebody by his or her name or, or the announcement of or giving of a new name would indicate something like closeness or familiarity or even intimacy. The Bible is also kind of filled with these boring deserts of text that we know as genealogies. And if you're anything like me, you have a tendency to start turning pages a little bit more quickly whenever you stumble upon one of them. Um, but these boring name deserts mattered to the author. They got in there because they matter. And, and they matter to the Jews, and they probably ought to matter a little bit more to me and to you, well, maybe they do matter to you, I don't know, I've not found them mattering to me all that frequently. Um, but I believe that they should, because in the Bible, names are what connect people to one another. Names are what connect people to a common story and a history. Names even connect people to God's very person. And the book of Exodus is, is probably, maybe other than Psalms or with Psalms, the best example that we have of this theme of names. and um, It begins with this line. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. That's Exodus 1.1. And in Hebrew tradition, titles are assigned to each of the five books uh, that we know as the Torah, or the five books of Moses, based on the first significant word in the text. And so this book that we kind of have come to know as Exodus in the Christian tradition, um, and from which our sermon text is coming tonight, is known in its own tradition simply as names, or the book of names. Our passage from chapter 3, which marks the beginning of the book's kind of central plot, which is God's deliverance of the sons and daughters of Israel from their slavery in Egypt, um, it brings us face to face with, 
with a different kind of name altogether. This story that we might know as the story of Moses and the burning bush um, is, is really a story about God's promise and about God's name. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has heard the cry of the people of Israel, as you, as you heard read in the text. And this God calls these people my people, and he informs Moses that I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, their oppressors, and I want you, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and to be my spokesperson. Well, Moses is caught off guard a little bit, and he, I, I, I kind of see him like leaning on a rock or something and saying, well, hold on there, buckaroo. If you think I'm just going to go bust a bunch of people out of jail right in front of the guards while standing really on nothing but the word of a talking shrub, you got another thing coming. What's your name? What's your name? As I reflect on Moses' question, it occurs to me that it's not a question that that I am often compelled to ask God. No, I I am a product of... uh, of my post-Enlightenment era, and I don't really know what to do most of the time when something can't be fit into my scientific method of understanding reality. And so my tendency is to think about God as a concept rather than maybe to get to know God as as a being or as a person. In my day-to-day life, I don't ask for God's name because it's easier on my brain if God doesn't have or doesn't need a name. There's a uh, recently deceased Christian theologian who I really love, but I'm going to pick on him here a little bit, named John. I think I can pick on him because he's dead, so it seems reasonable. Um, Recently deceased, I think he died in 2012. His name is John Hick, and he's one of, of many who have kind of taken the road of casting off God's proper name in favor of referring, um, in Hick's case, to to his understanding of God as the absolute real, or that which is most absolutely real. So God doesn't have or need a name anymore and can't be named. We're just going to say, whatever is the most real, that is God. And that's kind of how, how John Hick thinks that we ought to all function in our religious lives. He, he, he is a Christian, um, confessing Christian, but that's, that's, he thought the name was problematic. Um, and he, he did that because in our kind of pluralistic reality that that is pretty much unavoidable at this point. Um, The idea of there being a single or a primary name by which God is known and which is somehow kind of superior to any other name by which God might be known, uh, it just seems a little bit presumptuous. And and I actually think that he's right. Um, The first time I read this guy in theology class last year, I really loved it. and, And I still think that he's a very important voice for us to keep in mind as we engage in open relationship and dialogue with people of other faiths. And I, I do think that is important. But the truth of the matter is that Hick and, and most others who would create these kind of concept gods are generally doing so from the safety and comfort of their office at Princeton or in Edinburgh or whatever it might be. Um, it is a privileged person who can afford for God to be a concept because safe, comfortable people have little need for a powerful God. Now, Moses was anything but safe and comfortable. When this particular God encounters him, Moses is a fugitive and a foreigner. 
when this particular God appears to him in a fire in the bush that's not being consumed, Moses' concept of the absolute real probably just crumbled underneath him. And when this God calls him, Moses' burden of responsibility goes from being a shepherd who has to keep some sheep alive to kind of taking on this cosmic and stupidly dangerous proportion. Um, So in Moses' case, what's your name is really kind of the most appropriate question that he could have asked. Because what is absolutely real for Moses is that if he marches back into the country from which he has fled, toting a list of unreasonable demands like, let all of your free labor go, um, Pharaoh will probably just have him killed and buried in the sand. That's, that's Moses' absolute real here. But if this voice actually belongs to a divine being, a divine person of some sort, who created and is sovereign over all of reality, everything that we know as reality and more, then Moses is actually kind of faced with an offer that he and no one in his position could possibly refuse. A new reality. A life free from running and hiding. A land overflowing with beauty and bread. And the promise of communion with this divine creator, redeemer, sustainer God. He's hearing this voice telling him to go and do something that is totally absurd and probably impossible, but on the chance that this God is more than a concept, on the chance of a new life, Moses has to ask, what's your name? As uh, Everett Fox says, God's response perhaps gives Moses a little bit more than he bargained for. Um, Not just an identifying divine name, the implication of offering just simply and identifying divine, uh, divine name might be that there are other divinities, and the writer doesn't want to do that. But a divine mystery. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. We actually really just don't know the best way to translate it. Um, he goes on to say, Rivers of ink have since flowed in theological reflection on an analysis of this name. So this mysterious I am who I am or I will be who I will be is followed, <clears throat> is followed by, by what has come to be so hallowed in the Jewish and Christian faith that even though it appears some 6,000 times in the Hebrew Scripture, you will never see it in your Bible, not once. Yahweh is the pronunciation that has kind of been adopted. Though its origin is unknown, it's always written without vowels, and in many traditions it's not to be pronounced for fear of violating the third commandment, which you heard read, don't take the Lord's name in vain, or you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord. And you may have noticed on the screen when it said the Lord, it was in lowercase capital letters. <clears throat> that doesn't make sense. It was in small capital letters. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and that'll be how it is in most of your Bibles. Whenever you see small capital letters, the Lord, in your Bible, you can know that it's, it's functioning as a surrogate for this divine name that God revealed. And the way that we would write it is Y-H-W-H, but it's, it's Yahweh. Is, is how we have come to pronounce the divine name. Just a few chapters down the road, 
we're going to find out in chapter 6 that no one prior to Moses, not even Abraham, was privileged enough to have known God by this name. But everyone after Moses will know the God who hears the cry of the oppressed and who delivers them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This God is known by name. One of the commentaries I read put it a bit more eloquently. He said, Israel both understands its history from the name and the name from its history. The fact that our God has a name allows us to be a family of faith and not just a group of like-minded people. The fact that our God has a name gives hope in spite of the unavoidably bleak future that would await our world if it were subject only to our concept of the absolute real. The fact that our Father and Mother in Heaven has a holy name that has been revealed in history and sealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, God's own Son and our brother and Savior, means that family dinners, like the one that we're having tonight, always take place at the world's longest table. By thy name we are called out of our enslavements, out of our need to run and hide, out of the very worst that our absolute reality can throw at us. By thy name we are called in, gathered together at a common table, where we will tell and hear a common story. And it is a story that can only have been written by an uncommon God. A God who willingly dies to divine privilege, who willingly takes on the flesh of absolute reality, and the name that testifies to our new life. The name of Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. Hallowed be thy name. Amen.